0: Hi, it's Chris. A few reminders. First, have you signed up for my free newsletter at chrisreback.com? It brightens your Sunday afternoon with my thoughts, show notes, extra questions with guests, and more. This week's bonus question for David A. Kaplan, is this an illegitimate Supreme Court appointment? You can sign up at chrisreback.com next. If you like the podcast and the newsletter, how about supporting the effort? Become a member of Chris Reback's Conversations. Members get invitations to submit questions for upcoming podcast guests, exclusive early access to select podcasts before general release, access for limited complimentary copies of recent guest books, a signed copy of my book, You Won, Now What?, and most importantly, you'll be supporting a podcast that I hope you enjoy. Other benefits will be added in the future, and we offer two tiers of membership, patron and superstar. Choose the one that's right for you at chrisreback.com slash membership, finally. Thank you to everyone who takes the time to rate and review this podcast on iTunes. A few more of you did it since the last one. It makes a big difference. So if you like these conversations, I'd appreciate if you'd take a moment, go to iTunes, and if you're so moved, leave a five-star review. You know the parallel ask, though. If you don't like the conversations, well, thanks for still listening, but please just forget that whole rate review thing. So, three items for the checklist. Sign up for the newsletter, become a member, and please rate. Thanks, and now let's get to the podcast. I'm Chris Reback. This is Political Wire Conversations. How important has the Supreme Court become in American life? From gun rights to personal relationships, from money and politics to health care, whether it's access to abortion, the voting booth, or even our borders, the Supreme Court increasingly dominates how we work, live, and play. It defines, quite often, what kind of country we are. You could argue that it was the deciding factor for millions of voters in the last presidential election, potentially the deciding factor in the election itself. And this week, of course, between anonymous New York Times op-eds and Bob Woodward book drops, The Senate held confirmation hearings for our likely next justice, the one who many believe will turn this purple court decidedly red for the next generation. How did this happen? In Alexander Hamilton's words, the court would be based, quote, neither on force nor will, but merely judgment. While the president holds the sword and Congress commands the purse, the court would be, quote, the least dangerous branch. How did it all change? How have we transitioned our toughest political issues into judicial ones? That's the question and American challenge that David A. Kaplan addresses in his new and outstanding book, The Most Dangerous Branch, Inside the Supreme Court's Assault on the Constitution. In writing the book, Kaplan talked with a number of the sitting justices, incredible access. He tracks the shifts, outlines how justices took more and more political power, and explains why that is flat-out dangerous for our country. Also, as we discuss, Kaplan top-ticked it in terms of timing. Who else has been able to perfectly time a Supreme Court book with a Supreme Court confirmation? Even if you don't like his analysis, which I think you will, you got to admire his commercial sense. Before we begin, though, I want to remind you about our show's terrific sponsor, The Cook Political Report, and a special offer for our listeners to get an 18% discount off all subscriptions. You know already, people who want to stay ahead of the curve turn to The Cook Political Report, and with good reason. For 30 years, the report has nailed the nation's most important election outcomes and political trends. People who make it their business to know politics make it their business to subscribe to the Cook Political Report. And for Political Wire listeners, a special offer. You can use the code POLITICALWIRE to get 18% off all subscriptions. Just go to cookpolitical.com and use the code POLITICALWIRE, that's one word, to sign up and get 18% off all subscriptions that's cookpolitical.com code political wire. Okay, that's it. Here's my conversation with David Kaplan. David, thanks for joining me. I appreciate your time. Glad to be with you. First of all, you are clearly a powerful guy. How do you get the Senate to schedule a Supreme Court confirmation hearing the week your book is released?
1: Well, I mean, uh, the publishing gods have smiled down. On me this time, but I wrote a book on the 2000 presidential election, Bush v. Gore, and all that, uh-huh. a- and that book came out the day before 9 11. So, um,
0: <laughs> okay, so you the publishing
1: had the gods the, the frown and then they smile. I, I think, I mean, this book was planned for the fall of 2018 all along, but when Justice Kennedy announces retirement in June, my publisher um, moved the publication date from October to September, and. uh, they called it exactly
0: right. Yeah, that's, uh, that's pretty remarkable. Um, you know, very well done. And yeah, I guess the, the publishing gods, uh, taketh away and, uh, but they, they giveth back as well.
1: Things tend to even out <laughs> um, unless you're a Mets fan. Yeah.
0: <laughs> very true. Uh, or to, to quote Seinfeld, even Steven. Um, so, so <laughs> before we, we get in and, and, and just for, you know, just to set the record straight, I'm, I'm a Cubs fan primarily. Uh, That's okay. first, yes, yes. And, and you
1: got yours a couple of years ago, so.
0: I'm done. I'm good.
1: I read some of the scraps around. I will try. let me just note that the Mets swept the Cubs a couple of years ago. I know. And, uh, I you know. may have forgotten we haven't.
0: I, I have not forgotten. I was there. I, I went to, uh, I went to that. And, and there, there's, there's a, a lot, you know, even outside of Mets and Cubs, um, a lot going on, obviously, this week and the timing. Before we do that, just one, uh, detour I gotta make, um, because, you, you know, there's a parlor game going on right now as we're talking the, the anonymous New York Times, um, op-ed was just published. Big parlor game. Who did it? I just want to present some evidence. I think I figured it out. Um, I will submit to you, Counselor, page 370 of your book, where you write, if mere outcomes are the lodestar for evaluating the work of the justices, that altogether makes sense. Now, I assume you have read – that op ed and your use of the word lodestar is very, very, very curious. Can you confirm right now that you did not write that New York Times uh, anonymous op ed? I, I can tell op-ed? You
1: with full assurance I did not write it. When, when you write a book that gets to page 370, you're probably going to start using words like, <laughs> like, like, like lodestar. Okay. Um,
0: and Penston. No, it
1: wasn't me, although um, I did hear something about a major times op ed piece, but I had an op ed piece. Yes, uh, on this record of my book yesterday, and I tended to focus more on that one
0: uh, uh, as did as did we all, except you know there was this little one afterwards. but uh, yes, you had uh, well, we're, all, but... we're,
1: we're, we're, we're all stars in our own movie
0: <laughs> so let's let's talk about your movie um, and let's talk about first if we can, and I want to get into um, the thesis of your book. Um, and why the Supreme Court, um, is in your words the most dangerous branch and perhaps what can be done. And, and interestingly, as you point out, who the person is that you feel might actually be the one to turn things around, which, uh, um, you know, is, is a, a really fascinating thesis. Um, but the movie that we're all watching this week, um, is the Brett Kavanaugh um, Senate confirmation hearings. We're in the middle of them as we are talking right now. Um, so you, you know, you, you can't look into the future obviously. Um, but what are you seeing so far?
1: Listen, there has certainly been pandemonium and this is an extreme version of, of how other confirmations have played out. There haven't been arrests in the past and protests, but I think this is all pretty much, uh, predictable. I I think the thing that has surprised me most is some of the questioning, for example, by Senator uh, Harris of of California, Mm. I think has been pretty good. Um, As cross-examination goes, she's been able to make her point and corner the nominee. She hasn't necessarily gotten answers from him, but I, I, I think as theater goes, it's been somewhat better than, for example, some of the questioning of Neil Gorsuch Last year, he was President Trump's first nominee, but the whole thing is a charade because we know what the outcome is going to be. If, if somehow Judge Kavanaugh, who, who of course is only fifty three, admitted involvement in the in, in the Lindbergh baby kidnapping <laughs> in the nineteen thirties, he'd still be confirmed. So, uh, in, in that sense, um, there there's a lot of smoke, um, uh, but not a whole lot of fire. We know what the result is going to be, and I think that's lamentable. Different presidents nominating different nominees and different senators doing the questioning might, at the margins, uh, create a different dynamic. But I think, in the first instance, as I suggest in the book, uh, the problem lies uh, with the Supreme Court. Mm. If, If the court was not so involved in so many social and political issues that it takes unto itself to resolve, then the stakes for a single court seat would not be so high. And if the stakes were not so high, I think the vetting by presidents about who they were going to nominate would not be as cynical. And in turn, the politicians who were in charge of passing judgment on the nomination would not invest it um, with what you're seeing played out on TV. Lots of blame to go around yes but to me in the first instance, the court's lack of humility, minimalism, restraint as it has had been understood for many years in American history till about 50 years ago. I think it's the members of the court who bear more responsibility than they're often uh, given.
0: And connecting your parts of your theme to what's going on today, related to what you just said, another string or strand that, that I really took from what you said is the transfer – Almost these are my words, I think, not yours the, – the transfer of political responsibility from um, Congress, from the legislative branch, maybe the executive branch as well, but from the legislative branch – um to the justices and we can talk about whether that's an abdication on the part of the legislative branch or um a taking over uh on the part of the judicial branch so, it okay so there's so, an
1: interplay between the two the one affects the other
0: so so talk to me about that and did did you hear Ben Sasse's uh questions he Raised that idea at least when I heard him raising that idea, it did kind of re- have me recall some of what you were writing. So did did he touch on that point, or was he making was he touching on that point, but in a vastly different way? And and maybe well, I, I, mean, can, I mean,
1: listen, he likes this nominee. If it was a Democratic nominee up there, he'd probably be singing a different tune. But, but he gave hold, a very holding nice, that,
0: yeah, holding that part aside, I mean, he, he talked about. He gave the, a
1: nice homily on day one. Yeah, yeah, but it was pap. Yeah. He misses the point. Like, he's a thoughtful guy. He's more thoughtful than some of his colleagues uh, among the Republicans. But the idea that somehow um, the other side, the Democrats, those who oppose Kavanaugh, those still fuming over uh, the Republican obstruction of Merrick Garland, President Obama's nominee back in 2016, who couldn't even get a hearing. I think the idea that this is a, a Democratic-created problem is ridiculous. And what's interesting in all of the um, sturm and drang you hear during these hearings, nobody, uh, at least not what, what I've listened to, not a single person asks the nominee, when is it that the court should not get involved? Mm. It, it's not about this case or that case. It's not about abortion or campaign finance or presidential power. But just when is a Judge Kavanaugh that you think the court should not be involved. Take me through the 230-year history of the Republic and, and and evaluate for me when you thought the court properly stayed out and when you thought the court improperly got involved. We don't even question the court's primacy, and that orthodoxy is what I'm trying to challenge on both the left and the right. The challenge of doing so is that People will say they agree with you half the time. I interviewed a majority of the justices for this book on background. That's the condition of getting an interview. They're not going to be quoted on the record. You can't say you spoke to them. But when I, at the beginning of a conversation, when I would summarize what the book was about, they would say, I half agree with you. Because, of course, the decisions, the actual rulings that they don't like They suggest in many instances the court would more properly have pointed across the street and said, go see the folks in Congress. It's not a matter for the court. And the justices on the other side say the same thing about the opposite cases. There isn't a lot of principle among any of them, and it wasn't always that way. People also confuse my criticism with what they think my own political beliefs are, so that, for example, I think I'm a card-carrying liberal liberal as a a political matter, and I support extremely liberal abortion rights. I just think that those rights have to be won in legislatures, state legislatures and perhaps Congress, not at the Supreme Court. Many of my friends would vote me off the island (laughs) because they believe that to be Uh, criticism of abortion, and it's not. By the same token, when I criticize Bush v. Gore awarding the presidency to George W. Bush in 2000, or the Citizens United ruling in 2010 largely deregulating campaign finance and allowing a lot more money into political campaigns, my conservative friends, both of them, say that I somehow I'm carrying water for Democrats, and that's just wrong. But it is is—it is a challenging argument to make, and the book attempts to do so. My, my publisher thought that uh, when they bought this book two years ago, that my book would, of course, appeal to liberals and conservatives. And there's some evidence it is. But part of my concern is that, nope, everybody's just going to hate my book.
0: So it is remarkable that you, it, yeah. You, you should be so uh, you should be so lucky, I guess. Either that everyone hates it or everyone loves it. But you, as you, long you,
1: as it gets attention, it, but it is it is, it is a difficult a, argument um, to make, and I realized that as I wrote it. Um, but it, but it, it's hardly intuitive because people assume that the court. All the people, most people evaluate the court based on the outcome of ruling. Supported, uh, the, the ruling was in favor of Trump's presidential power. Therefore, I, I don't like the decision. The ruling supported abortion rights. I do like the ruling. And that's fine for what Congress does and what the president himself does. But we, we used to expect something different from the Supreme Court. And if all we expect now is that it becomes a super legislature, Blue chambers yep. and red chambers.
0: Yeah,
1: why do you have the court?
0: So I, I don't. I don't know. And you, maybe you'll, you'll tell me how, frankly, one is able to talk with a Supreme Court justice. But but when you spoke with them, and to the extent that perhaps you were able to say, you know, listen, man, or listen, ma'am, um, you're too political, or you've you've become just another political branch. Do they? agree with you or or is this where you say they agree with half of it you know meaning yes yeah the other side has become political and here are the cases where you know it it was political and by the way those are the cases that the justice you were talking to you know d- dissented from or or you know was was on the opposite side but do do they agree with you that it's too that that they just have become kind of another political uh, justices branch
1: justices don't want to be called political whether They don't want to be called political themselves, or they don't even want their colleagues down the hall to be called political. And I think for the most part, with some glaring exceptions some of the time, I think they try in good faith to behave like judges and not like politicians, and therefore in their own minds, because they have to sleep at night, they believe they're doing so. But they necessarily, uh, what is your judicial approach? It's necessarily a function of where you've been in life. You're not a robot uh, reading text. Uh, and applying self-executing commands of the constitution it's a function of your schooling your upbringing your ideology where you work did you work in presidential administrations Did you live in in the ivory tower all of those things obviously factor into who you are and the best kind of judge tries to remove herself from those influ- influences and and tries to be if not neutral at least removed and uh... Independent now. On some occasion, I think justices have been nakedly partisan. I report in the book that Justice O'Connor, who was in the five to four majority in Bush v. Gore, her husband a few months after that ruling was at a private charity dinner and told the table, remarkably, that his wife had voted as she as she did in Bush v. Gore, knowing that the ruling was wrong, but she did so. Because she thought she wanted to leave the court soon, because her husband John was ill. He was in the at the beginning uh, of Alzheimer's, and she didn't want her successor named by a Democrat. Understandably so. If if that story is true, yeah. And John O'Connor is dead. I obviously didn't hear it from him. That's corrupt and justice and Justice Scalia, in in, in some. Overheated remarks in the last 10, 15 years on gay marriage, on Bush v. Gore, express views that I think most observers would regard as nakedly partisan. But for the most part, no. I think they would very much disagree that they act like super politicians.
0: What was the most? And I think to
1: their credit, they try not to. That's a different matter of whether they succeed, and it's a different matter of what it looks like to the public. Most of the public thinks now that it's just another purely political branch of government and and, and that's terrible. And it distorts, for example, it, it, has, it weakens the court's prestige. Yeah. It enfeebles Congress as we talked about. But it also distorts presidential elections. You know, in 2016, the polling showed that a significant percentage, over 20% of those who voted for Trump Didn't like Trump, didn't like his temperament, didn't like his policies, but they held their noses and voted for him. Do you want a presidential election to turn not so much on a president's economic or political or social or cultural views, but the most on who they're going to appoint to the Supreme Court? Because ultimately, that's where their legacy lies, because the justice is going to far outlive the president's time in office. That seems crazy to me.
0: How pointed were you able to get in a question with one of the justices on these types of issues?
1: You know, it all depends on the ju- on the justice. Some justices I talk relatively briefly. Um, others I talked to for hours. They were generous with mm. their time. It took some time to convince them to do so. Once one justice talked to me, it was easier to get the next one. And once three talked to me, then it was especially easy because I think they understood you were serious about this. Um, you were attempting to write a serious book. Plus, they also wanted to get their views on, in if they knew you talked to somebody around the corner of the building. And one good-naturedly said to me, because I'll sometimes say at the end of um, an interview, why are you talking to me? I don't ask that at the beginning, unless <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> they reconsider. But one said to me, so you stopped pestering me. Huh. So i the, they, They're just people. They're, they're not... Uh, Uh, They're not gods up on uh, Mount Olympus, much as the marble temple in Washington and the courtroom itself would make them seem to be. They wear the black robes. They rarely give interviews or appear on television uh, unless they're peddling their memoirs. The court proceedings aren't televised. They certainly give all the appearances um, of the gods up on Olympus, but they're just people. And most of them, most of the time, are smart, articulate, they live in the real world, and, and some of the anecdotes uh, about life behind the scenes of the court is an attempt to show that they're just people, imperfect, um, temperamental, sometimes emotional, and, and, and so forth.
0: You, one of the things you wrote, um, with Scalia gone, Robertson and his colleagues wondered who would be next to get the gig, but also who would first be subjected to the inane confirmation process of the Senate. It, do they feel the confirmation process is inane? I mean, I know that's your word in, in your writing, um, but is that how they view it?
1: it probably, that probably understates their view. <laughs> I don't think they have a lot of regard for the process, though they say otherwise during the process. Of course. And why would they? Just turn on the TV. Um, it's, it's at best a charade. The Republicans aren't interested. In even having a hearing, they'd be happy to talk about puppies and kittens and apple pie and last night's box scores and go lunch early, just as the Democrats would be if it was the nominee of a Democratic president. And the Democratic senators, with some exceptions, like we talked about um, Senator Harris yesterday, just aren't very good at cross-examination, and it's hard when you only have 30 minutes uh, at a time. I've argued that they would be better off in hiring a professional litigator, somebody who does this for a living, and give the litigator the floor the entire time. Let somebody conduct a six-, seven-, eight-hour cross-examination. And once upon a time, the Senate did that in other contexts, and ran contra uh, back during the Reagan administration in the 80s, and in the Watergate hearings in the 1970s. Senators largely gave the floor up to counsel, and I think they would be better off doing so. Would you get a different result? No, but I think you might get a slightly different uh, process. The justices, at least privately, now that they've finished their last uh, congressional hearing for all time, I think look upon the process as someplace between a waste of time and despicable. And I don't blame them, except that I think most of them don't quite think of the connection that the hearings have devolved to where they are in part because of the court's aggressiveness. The court is involved. Look at look at the issues the court resolves over the last fifty years: same-sex marriage, yeah, uh, uh, abortion, campaign finance, the reach of the Voting Rights Act of 1965, um, gun control, and in every one of those issues, it's the court running the country, and that that. Just raises the stakes. I don't argue in the book. I wouldn't for a moment suggest that the court should be entirely impotent. There are lots of areas that the court should be involved in. Uh, The First Amendment protects freedom of expression. You wouldn't expect Congress to to protect unpopular views by definition. A a representative part of government protects the most... uh, They adopt popular views. They're not going to look out for the speech interests of the Ku Klux Klan, or communists, or white nationalists. That's why we have a First Amendment. The Fourth Amendment protects against unreasonable searches and seizures. Congress isn't going to look out for the rights of criminal suspects. Why would they? They're unpopular. So we have the court to vindicate such interests. Same thing for uh, discrimination against minorities. I I don't want a powerless court, but I I think the court ought to pick and choose far better what it chooses to get involved in and if you look last spring look at the most important case before the court arguably in 20 years since Bush v. Gore on partisan gerrymandering where the ins those who control uh, redistricting in congressional and state elections they rig the shape of the districts to keep themselves in powers. It's the ins um, making sure the outs can't take power. In that situation who's going to fix the problem? not the legislature by definition. And that's where you need the court to step in and truly be an umpire to set the boundaries. You're not picking Republicans. You're not picking Democrats. You're not making policy decisions. You're just saying elections aren't fair. What did the Supreme Court do in June? They punted the whole issue, as they've done over the decades, not for us to decide. So, you know, they know what it looks like to say not our job. They know what it's what it's like to say that's a very important issue, but you'll have to go see your elected representatives. They just get the balance all wrong, in my view.
0: Two questions. One, I want to ask you quickly about, and it'll be tough, but I want to ask you about history because among the things that the book, your book does, is you really connect the history and the ideas and what the framers wrote and, you know, and, and in the Federalist Papers as well and, and draw that line to how we got to where we are today. And then, um, I, I've got a closing question because you, you, Prescribe, um, or you you identify the individual who you think may stand the best chance of bringing the court back and and kind of my words rescuing the institution. Um, and I want you to talk about that um, on the historical front. There is such disagreement around how jurists should act and interpret the Constitution, obviously. And you point out the challenges around originalism and textualism. What guidance did the framers give, one one way or the other? I mean, this is, on on how jurists should behave and how they should go about interpreting the Constitution. Mm-hmm. What, what, what came to me as I was reading your book was, why did they leave the interpretation, that interpret up to such interpretation?
1: Well, if you, there, you can write a Constitution in, in two different ways. You can write it in a general manner, as ours is written, with, with clauses like due process of law, equal justice, uh, equal protection, Unreason- uh, and, and no uh, unreasonable searches and seizures. or Some countries try to write a very detailed laundry list um, of, reg- of, of regulations. The problem with this second approach is it doesn't really prove itself to be adaptable. Our framers decided to write something um, that would be more open, aspirational, but that requires interpretation. We can differ on what the interpretation um, should be, but it does require interpretation. And the notion, uh, when you hear senators spout off, um, you'll you hear it hourly at these hearings, a judge shouldn't make law. He should only, um, uh, follow the law. It's nonsense. The Constitution isn't self-executing. And what we, what they mean when they say a judge shouldn't make law, they only say that when they don't like what a ruling is. The gun control ruling in 2008, Uh, Heller was making law. Abortion, Roe v. Wade in 1973, was making law. Necessarily, courts have to fill in the blanks. And, you know, the trope, the originalist trope from Justice Scalia and others, that you have to follow the Constitution based on what the words meant, or perhaps what the framers thought in 1787 is ridiculous. That isn't what the document says. There's no clause in the Constitution that says, "Thou shall interpret me," based on what you thought the people who wrote me thought in 1787. So it, it's based on far more than just the words. It's based on the structure of the whole document. There may be competing clauses. There's a liberty clause. There's an equality clause. Those two things, are, you often get an opposite uh, result. You look at precedent, which has been discussed a lot during the confirmation hearings. Uh, You try to look at the intent of those who wrote a statute. It's it's that range of possibilities that a good judge tries to wrestle with, and people in good faith can reach
0: different conclusions. And and as you wrote, uh, a document written in the 18th century may have uh, favored the haves. Um, slightly more than uh, than others.
1: Uh, I mean, text matters to some degree. When the Constitution says that nobody, you have to be 35 to be president, that sort of means you have to be 35. Um, but but due process of law and equal protection uh, are not self-executing, and nobody really thought when the Equal Protection Clause um, was pulled, when the 14th Amendment was was added after the Civil War, that it was going to protect women against discrimination. At best, it was going to protect um, 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 black, uh, black citizens. But nobody seriously questions, at least not on the record, that equal protection applies to women and other categories. So things do change, and nobody other than Justice Scalia, I don't think, would argue that, well, we executed horse thieves once upon a time, that we might still do so. It's Justice Scalia would often say, "I'm an originalist, yes. not a nut." <laughs> well, what does that mean? Your, nu- you, 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 know, my sensibility is your nuttiness. It involves some degree of judgment. we only, all we, do, all, we all have to agree, and involves judgment. The, the only question is, is whose judgment is better.
0: Understood. Uh, and, and just to, to close out, uh, David, um, looking forward, if you feel that the court has squandered its institutional capital, um, what needs to occur to get it back? And, and why, in your words, in this, uh, you know, sorry, spoiler alert, um, comes at the end. Um, what, why does John Roberts provide, in your words, the court's best hope?
1: Well, everything's relative. I I think different presidents and different senators would improve the situation, but I think the best chance for the court, at least in the short term, unless you were to see structural reforms, which aren't going to happen, term limits for justices, I think, um, is a great idea, but that would require a constitutional amendment, isn't going to happen. I think the best hope among the nine justices we're going to have, assuming Kavanaugh is confirmed, I think the best hope is Chief Justice Roberts. He will become, uh, such as it is, the, the new swing justice for placing Justice Kennedy. Don't confuse Roberts for Kennedy. Don't think of Roberts as a moderate. But when you look at the four to his left and the four to the right, including Kavanaugh, I think Roberts is the closest thing uh, uh, to an institutionalist who will, more than his own pet projects, he really wants to deregulate campaign finance, go beyond Citizens United. He wants to eliminate racial preferences uh, in, in admissions, in hiring, and so forth. But I think more than uh, those, he has enormous affection and respect for the role of the court and might want to keep the court out of the political storm. Now He did that most famously, as I argue in the book um, correctly in the first Obamacare ruling, where he upheld the law, not because he thought it was a good law. He didn't think it was a a particularly good law, and it was a terribly drafted law, but because he thought it was up to Congress to decide such things. And I think he recognized that on the eve of the 2012 presidential election, it would be awful for the court to be in the middle um, of that maelstrom. I think it is possible that Roberts, going forward, will come to understand... um, that the court loses, it, it's bad for the system, bad for the court's prestige, bad for the political branches for the court to continually be in that storm. And I think he might veer in that direction, but don't confuse him uh, for being one of the liberals. And there are enough other areas where he has asserted himself, including just last spring, for example, in the ruling uh, gutting labor unions. That I wouldn't be particularly optimistic, but I think he is the best hope uh, for the court, and he wants to be um, a great justice. I tell a story in the book where he's going to lunch uh, with law clerks, and one of them asks, so how do you like the job? And the clerks expect an, innoc- an innocuous answer, it's the privilege of a lifetime, and so forth. And he says, I was born in the wrong era. Mm. There'll never be another John Marshall. Marshall was the great early chief justice beginning in the 19th century who served for more than three decades. And he was the one who solidified the court's power by establishing the court's uh, power to overrule an act of Congress. That was by no means obvious, and it's certainly not written in the Constitution. Marshall is really the architect of the court even today, and Robert's a student of the court, Knew that, and so he's telling the clerks, "I will never have a chance to be great like that." I argue in the book that it is possible he might be able to do so.
0: David, thank you. It's it's a it's a terrific um, and important book, and the stories like the one you just told um, are, are really powerful. It, it was a great read, and uh, thank you for the conversation.
1: Thank you. A pleasure to join you.
0: That was my conversation with David Kaplan. Want more from David? A reminder to sign up for my free newsletter at chrisreback.com. It has bonus insights from him on the question, is this an illegitimate Supreme Court appointment? My thanks to David for the conversation and you for listening. I'm Chris Reback. I'll talk with you soon.